Well, hello everybody and welcome. It is great to be with you today. It is too hot to be at the beach, so we are in my basement, but it's still a great day and a great opportunity to open the word of the Lord together. And that's what we're going to do right away to get started today. If you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. We are in the seventh week of our series where we're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse, and this is where we find ourselves today. So Colossians 2, 16 to 23 is our text. And just for a point of uh, practice here, you should maybe just turn to that and leave it right open in your Bible or on your phone because we're going to be jumping all around through it today. It'll just be easier for you to follow along. So here we go. Colossians 2.16 starts by saying, Therefore, I'll stop already. That points back to what we just read just before this. And uh, in the section previous in Colossians 2, it was talking about how Jesus has triumphed uh, over the grave, over the powers of darkness by his resurrection uh, from death after he died on the cross. And in so doing, he proved that he is greater. He is central. He is important. He is the object and subject of our faith. So therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, we'll talk about that word, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Somebody says that's kind of a different text, Braden, and that it is. Before we get into it, I want to just say, Lord, we welcome you into this time. Please speak to us and through us and uh, speak to us by your word. Uh, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do today is talk about two big points, two major points. They'll have some sub points in there as well, but two major ones. And the first one is this. I want to talk about things that can wreck your faith. How uplifting, right? Things that can wreck your faith. So if you think about it, not even just from a faith perspective, but just in general, there are things out there in life that aren't good for us. Whoever it was that said anything in moderation, they were not really accurate in their assessment. Um, I got struck by lightning, but it's okay. It was only a little bit of lightning. I got bitten by a venomous snake, but it's okay because it was only one bite. That's not really how it works. Some things are straight up bad for us and we should avoid them. Some of these bad things for us are obvious and it's easy to avoid them, right? Like we know, oh, it would be bad for me to drink that bottle of bleach under the sink, so I won't do it. Um, but there are some things that are bad for us and destructive to us, but we might not even realize that they are. And these are a little bit scarier because they seem like they're fine and they don't cause any immediate harm to us, so it seems, 
but they can actually be deadly. So I'll give you just a silly example of this. I used to work with a girl who just about every shift, she'd come in with one of those tall cans of, I don't know if it was Arizona green tea or whatever it was. And uh, she piped up one day and said, you know, she's reading the label. I'm quite surprised how good these things are for you. Like normally, like, you know, if it was pop or some other canned drink, they got like tons of sugar, like 45 grams. Uh, but this only has, I'm, I don't know the numbers, this only has 15. It's pretty good for you. And I said, let me have a look at the can for a second. And she handed it over and I said, you are right. There's only 15 grams of sugar per one serving and there are four servings in the can. So you're really drinking 60 grams of sugar. And she said, oh, I had no idea. So she didn't know that was bad for her. So it is in our faith. Some things, when we're into them, seem like they're fine. They might even, like it says in verse 23 of our text, they might even have the appearance of wisdom, but they're actually foolishness. These things over time can wreck our faith. And we're going to see a couple of them in our text today. There's lots more even, but we'll focus on these ones that we see here in Colossians 2. So thing number one that can wreck your faith, empty rituals. At home, wherever you're watching, say empty rituals. Have to get you to participate even when we're not together. So empty rituals. This one is as old as the day is long. Uh, over the years, people have bought into the lie that in order to... Uh, successfully go through their faith, all they need to do, to do is adhere to these rituals. Just go through the motions. Do some prescribed list of religious activities and actions, and you'll be doing everything you need to do, everything there is to do. You'll be living your best life in Christ. And in this scenario, your faith kind of becomes more like a checklist. And that's a pretty slippery slope, um, because when our faith becomes a checklist, it's all about the rules, the rituals, the traditions. Our hearts can really easily grow cold and disconnected. That's not what God wants for us. God is not after a checklist. He's after you to be connected with Him. God is not after you to perform rituals. He wants a relationship with you. God is not after your habitual religious practices. He's after your heart. And empty rituals, if we look in our text, we can see that they were being pushed in the church at Colossae, as we see uh, here in Colossians 2. So specifically, it mentions food and drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. All of those things, those are references to Jewish customs. And I'll go short on this one, but essentially, uh, the Christian faith sprung up primarily out of a context of Judaism. Uh, and what happened is, uh, in the early days, there were a lot of people who formerly were Jews who then became Christians. There were also people who were not Jews and became Christians. And especially in these early days of the church, what would happen a lot is the people who would come from the Jewish background would look at those uh, not from a Jewish background and they would say, hey, you need to, as a Christian, you need to do all these Jewish practices. And in reality, those aren't actually part of our faith. So for instance, there were fairly specific and strict regulations for Jewish people about what they could and couldn't eat, the food and drink. And again, these Jewish Christians would look at the non-Jewish Christians and say, hey, if you're not adhering to our dietary laws, you're not really a Christian. It's not really how it works. It mentions festivals here. There were three major Jewish festivals that happened every year that participation was expected uh, in. Uh, they were the Passover, that's probably the most famous one, uh, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles. Again, those things are great 
if you're Jewish, but if you're not Jewish, they aren't necessarily part of the fabric of Christianity. Uh, it mentions new moons. The Hebrew calendar is lunar based and the new moon marks the start of a new month. And so there are verses in the Old Testament that say at the new moon, at the start of a new month, the Jewish people would uh, go about certain um, rituals, festivals, feasts, that kind of thing. It mentions Sabbaths as well. The Sabbath is the Jewish day of rest. And this is one that a lot of Jews would really rigorously follow. Uh, you might remember how upset the religious leaders used to get with Jesus when he did not follow and keep the Sabbath like they did. They got incensed. They were furious. So again, these new moons, these Sabbaths, that's fine if you're Jewish, but for Christians, that's not part of the letter of uh, the code, the covenant for Christians. So why I'm saying all this is when you get into this kind of arrangement, when you get super concerned with traditions, rituals, etc., you get on a pretty slippery slope. You have to understand there's nothing wrong inherently with traditions, but we have to make sure that we're not elevating our traditions uh, to the level of highest importance, uh, especially when they're traditions that aren't even necessary to our faith or scriptural, and we'd be probably okay if we didn't have them. Another one of these empty rituals that we see is asceticism. That's a word I got to get you to say it, asceticism. We see that in verses 18 and 23 of our text. Here's the definition of that word. It's not a word we see a lot. Asceticism is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Yes, that doesn't sound like very much fun. You are hearing that right. Now, of course, part of our faith is doing the things that God wants us to do and not doing the things that God doesn't want us to do. But asceticism is really overemphasizing the don'ts. Asceticism is where your faith only seems to amount to the list of things you're not allowed or supposed to do. Uh, it's where you'll go to extreme lengths to keep yourself in the rules. It's where you're more concerned with, oh my word, I heard part of a rock and roll song on the radio. Oh my word, oh my word, I'm in big trouble. You're more concerned with that than you are about your relationship with Jesus uh, to start with. This is where, and this is an extreme example, um, there's, uh, there was an early church father named Origen, and the story uh, with him, as history tells us, is that he actually castrated himself so that he would not enter into sexual sin. That's pretty extreme and severe. And it even mentions in our text about severity to the body in verse 23. That can be one element of asceticism, just doing things that actually are harmful to us to, to try to go the extra mile to make sure that we, that we don't sin. Asceticism can also involve going to great lengths uh, to not do things that God doesn't actually care about. And that one's kind of a downer because... Uh, it's kind of a waste of time. You look at verse 21 and 22 of our text, it says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. In other words, these things that people are so worried about, they're not even lasting, enduring things. They're not really things of any consequence. Uh, but asceticism says, ah, don't, don't do that, don't touch that, don't, don't taste that, don't eat that, don't look at that, when God actually never said that's how it has to be. Asceticism makes a great effort to hammer away at all the don'ts of the faith, but there's one major flaw in it, and it's very ironic. If you look at verse 23 of our text, it says, it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the whole point of asceticism is to not indulge, and this tells us right in our text, it actually has no power to help uh, stop you from indulging. 
So ultimately, no matter how hard you try in your own strength to do the right things and not do the wrong things, uh, what this is telling us is that we're not able in our own strength to maintain that kind of a pace. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the answer, which we're going to see later, is not just uh, rigorously try hard in our own strength. It's to trust in Jesus and allow his strength to flow through us. That's how, uh, that's how we can avoid indulging the flesh. Anyway, asceticism can be an empty ritual because, again, it can just become a habitual practice of rule following. And again, God is primarily concerned with the relationship. Yes, the rules are there as well, but they follow the relationship. Do you understand? Now... There are, of course, other empty rituals than what we've just listed here just now. In fact, what I want to tell you is that anything can become an empty ritual. Anything for us as Christians can be an empty ritual if we're not guarding ourselves against it. So, for instance, what about going to church? You know, that's a, that's a snag for a lot of people. Rather than looking at that Sunday morning worship time, whether it's in person or online or whatever... Um, rather than looking at that in the proper context as like one piece of the whole pie, some people say, well, all I got to do is show up at the building once a week, maybe once a month, and I can just sit through whatever they're doing and uh, check. There, I did it. I fulfilled my religious obligation. Well, no. Um, same goes for something like life group. If you're in a small group, oh, I went, I sat, I had the meal, I sort of kind of listened to what they were talking about afterward, and then I went home. Check. It's not about just checking off the box. Even some really awesome things like praying or reading our Bible. If we're not careful, those can become empty rituals. If our attitude toward those things is, well, I just got to show up and hammer through this and just do it. There, okay, yeah, I read a chapter. Check. What did it say? I don't know, but I read it. You're missing the point. Things like tithing, things like corporate worship and singing, things like even your acts of service can become empty rituals. Some people have rituals, for instance, like can't go shopping on Sunday, can't play cards on Sunday, uh, you gotta wear a suit to church, you've gotta read the Bible in this particular translation. These are all things that are fine if your conscience leads you to do or not do them. Like I have an aunt that won't play cards on Sundays. That is fine. And, and it's fine if these things are legitimately helping you follow Jesus better, but I'm saying that they or anything else can become an empty ritual because, listen, listen, it's because it's ultimately a matter of the heart. It's not primarily about the activity that you're doing. It's the heart that you're doing it with. That's what this is saying. And you have to make no mistake here with this. Your empty rituals are not pleasing to God. He doesn't think you're pious. He doesn't think you're such an awesome religious person because you can just check off all the boxes. Uh, an engaged heart is what pleases God. I'm talking about a heart that is tender toward God and and seeking him and listening for his voice and desiring to worship him and longing for him and, and is humble before him. That's the kind of heart that God wants. So friends, what about you today? Where are you at in all this? I, I, I want you, and I'll do the same myself, I want us to take an honest inventory of our lives. I want you to look under the hood at your own life. Are there things in your life that you're doing just going through the motions in your faith and it's really just an empty ritual? I encourage you to be honest with yourself about that because this could be the day where the Lord is saying, hey, it's time for you to shed those things and step into more vitality and life and freedom in Christ. It could be your day for that. So empty rituals can wreck our faith. 
The second one I want to talk about is false teaching. Somebody say that at home. Now, we don't have the time to do a full expose of false teaching today, but here's what I will say about it. As far as false teaching is concerned, it's really dangerous, it's really deadly. False teaching involves anybody, but especially someone who is in a position of influence or authority, but anybody who comes along and says anything that leads people away from faith in Jesus according to Scripture. Remember, this can even be stuff that looks really good. Remember, it could have the appearance of wisdom, but it's actually foolishness and can destroy us. False teaching leads people to take their eyes off of Jesus and put them somewhere else. False teaching leads people to waste their time looking in other places than Jesus for their fulfillment and their meaning and their identity and their purpose. People always get burned when they buy into false teaching. And it might not seem like it right away, but over time, that's what happens. It is a prime candidate for wrecking our faith. Now, I've hinted at it a couple of times in this series, but it's believed that there was false teaching being taught and spread in the church at Colossae. And uh, this section of scripture that we're in today certainly seems to imply that. So what I want to do just for a minute is talk about those things that were sort of being spread and pushed in this church. So from this text, we can see, first of all, just on a general level, the fact that Paul is writing all this stuff that he's writing, the fact that he wrote the letter in the first place, uh, it seems to indicate that he's fighting against something that was being taught. Someone was obviously advocating for something, and Paul is coming along afterward and saying, actually, no, this is the right way. So that gives you a clue. And it actually looks like it may have just been one person largely responsible for spreading this false teaching in Colossae. If you look at verse 18 of the text, it says, da, 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 puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Makes it sound like it's one person. There may have been many involved, but it could have just been one who was responsible for uh, kind of being the ringleader there. And that can be a little bit of a tell right there, to be honest. If you look across the history of the church and historically how false teachers work, sometimes they fly solo. They don't always. Um, there are certainly instances where groups or whole churches or whole denominations kind of go sideways, but there are definitely examples uh, of where someone is just out on their own. They are a lone wolf. They're teaching things that aren't true. Usually it's for their own personal benefit and gain. So I would just issue a practical word of caution there. Uh, if you come across some teaching or some advice or some interpretation of scripture or whatever it is because it's out there like we've all seen it we're going to see it again there's this thing called the internet and it's all over it if you come across any of that stuff and it seems like this sounds kind of wonky this seems like against what i know of god this seems like it's not in line with like orthodox christian belief and there's just one person that's talking about it and trying to sell you on it don't don't rush out to believe them, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, there's a chance that they may be right, but there is a chance that they may be wrong. So, like I said last week, we're to test the spirits, right? We're to test and see if this stuff is from God. This person who was pushing uh, the false teaching, they were pushing the empty rituals that we talked about already. Uh, things like... Um, like I said, you're not really a Christian unless you do X, Y, Z. You've not really had a spiritual experience unless you're into X, Y, Z practice. Not really how it works, uh, unless it's in the Bible. They were pushing angel worship. 
If you look in verse 18, that's what it says, the worship of angels. Someone was insisting on that. You need to have that uh, if you're going to be a successful, a good Christian. And that is a fail. Angel worship, like we worship the creator, the Lord Jesus, not created beings like angels. Angel worship is a pagan practice. Um, we see lots of other cultures and religions do it. And it's believed that there may have been an angel worshiping cult in the city of Colossae around the time this book was written. So maybe maybe there was influence kind of coming in from the surrounding culture. Um, maybe it was just, well, we'll take a little bit of what we see in the world and we'll mix it in with, you know, with our Christian faith and whatever. Well, we don't do that. That is false teaching. That's not what we do. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Um, what else? They, this person was bragging about the visions they were having. It says in verse 18, he was going on in detail about visions. And I think we all probably know what that means, but just so there's no confusion. When we're talking about visions, we're talking about a person having a vivid image or scene kind of playing out before them. It's different. It's supernatural. It's kind of outside the realm of normal experience. But if you look at scripture, visions definitely are a thing. They do happen. Um, I've never personally had a crazy write a book about it kind of a vision, but I've definitely had times where the Lord has put, say, a picture on my mind. And, uh, you know, you get to see that play out. That would kind of be in the realm of vision, at least to some extent. There's nothing wrong with visions in and of themselves. Um, but there are a couple problems with uh, the visions that we see uh, mentioned in this section of text. Number one, it never says that they're from God. And I think that's kind of important. A lot of times in Scripture you say, such and such, I had a vision from the Lord. Well, it doesn't say that here. It just said he's having visions. It could be a vision, uh, it could be something that's just made up in a person's mind. You could be on strong medication or cough syrup or whatever and be hallucinating. Uh, it could be from a different source. So again, we got to test the spirits. We don't just believe it because someone's saying it. Two, it says Buddy Boy here was going on in detail about his visions. He's going on and on. It sounds like he's bragging about them. He is, he is making it seem like he's... Uh, on some spiritual pedestal and he's experienced all this great stuff that you know these lowly peasants have never uh, experienced themselves he was making it seem like the experience of faith is all about having visions and listen they're cool and they can be a blessing but they're not the point of our faith visions are also the rarity not the norm the point of your faith is not to have visions but to seek and to serve and to worship the Lord Jesus so you could be having all the visions in the world and still be missing the point that's what I'm saying another one he was puffed up without reason and had a sensuous mind verse 18 tells us that that's another way of saying that this guy was full of himself he was prideful uh, this means he was in it for himself, he was in it for his own gain and benefit, and not primarily the glory of God or the good of others. Pride, like we've talked about, pride causes people to do foolish things, even wicked things, simply so they can get themselves further ahead. Uh, when it talks about his sensuous mind in verse 18, that gives you a little bit of a picture of this guy is capable and willing to think up whatever crazy things he needs to in order to uh, further his cause. Here's what I would tell you. Pride is often the source of false teaching. If you look at kind of where it originates, pride is like right there near the root of it. And what false teachers do, they say, at least functionally, they say, well, I don't really like what the Bible says about this. So I'm going to change it to say what I want it to say. And that's going to help me. That's going to be better for me. 
Also, other people might hear it and they might think it's pretty good too, so that'll help advance my career or my cause or whatever, that'll give me accolades. That's foolish, that's wicked, that's sinful. Furthermore, they were, this person was promoting self-made religion, verse uh, 23, and it was based on human precepts and teachings, verse 22. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know about coming to God and how to be made right with God and how to interact with Him and, and how to live in a way that's pleasing to Him and really gives us a clue at what life is all about and how, you know, how, like I say, how we relate to God in it. Self-made religion comes along and says, well, I'm going to make up my own rules. I'm going to make up my own reality. I'm going to make up my own religion. So where Scripture says, here's who God is, well, self-made religion says, actually, uh, I'm, this, is, this is what my God is like. Scripture says, here's how God wants you to live. Self-made religion says, no, I'm going to decide how I should live. It's my truth. Scripture says, here's how you approach God. No, I'm going to I'm going to, it's going to be on my terms. Self-made religion. So, uh, scripture says, here's how you worship God. No, no, I worship God how I please. Again, it's on my terms. Self-made religion can involve, like I said in verse 22, human precepts and teachings. So we've seen some of them already. Things like asceticism, severity to the body, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are human rules. These are not things that God said. And, and what this person was doing was piling on a whole bunch of rules, self-made things, and saying this is what God said, or he was at least making them to be at the level of something God said. That's similar to what the Pharisees used to do, by the way. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus was all over those guys because they were guilty of this. They would make up rules. They, here's what God says, and they would take it further. And, and Jesus said, you guys are ridiculous. You're missing it entirely. Finally, this person was guilty of not holding fast to Jesus. You read about that in verse 19. So in all the stuff this false teacher was doing and those involved in the false teaching, uh, they had forgotten that Jesus is who is of central importance. They were not holding on to Christ as the source of life and the source of truth, but they were saying we're going to make up our own truth. That is no Christian message right there. So that's a little bit on the false teaching in Colossae. False teaching like this or any kind can make a dumpster fire of your faith. Here's, just to bring this down a little bit, here's something important for you to remember. False teaching still happens today. False teaching is not just something you read about in, you know, in the record of this happened 2,000 years ago. It's very much a thing today. It's all around us. It takes on all kinds of forms. We can't list them all today, but this is stuff like your prosperity gospels. Just say the name of Jesus and you'll get health and wealth and kiss goodbye all your troubles. These are things like self-righteousness gospels where if you just work hard enough or do enough or try hard enough, uh, you can be right with God. You'll, have to, you'll earn your way into His favor. That's false teaching. There are, there are false teachings that do stuff to diminish uh, the reality and the deity of Jesus. Yeah, he was just a good man. He was just enlightened. He was a good prophet. No, he's God. Those are false teachings. Uh, there are teachings that do things to elevate us, the human experience, to the level of God's, make us gods ourselves. Those are false. Those are wrong. That is not what the Bible says. And you need to be able to tell the difference between true and false teaching, my friends. Yes, we'll help you with that as a church, but you need to make sure you're doing your due diligence. Don't believe everything you hear. Just because it's on the internet does not mean it's true. 
Like we talked about last week, you have the responsibility to test the spirits. Test what is being said just because it's on the internet, just because it's a popular preacher saying it maybe, just because it's got 25,000 likes or subscribers on Facebook does not mean it's true. You need to pray about it. You need to measure it up against what God says in his word. You need to seek wise counsel on it. Don't just blindly eat it up. That's foolishness. We need to be wise and discerning in this regard. So... Those are some things that can wreck our faith. And this is just the stuff, like I say, that we can pick right out of our text. Uh, there's so much more that we could say. Here's what I'll tell you today. Stay away from this stuff. That's my pastoral advice to you. Stay away from it. Even though some of this stuff, when you're in it, can look really wise, it's foolishness. It's destructive. And the reason it's foolish and destructive is because when you are camping out in these things and spending your time and your energy in these things, you are missing out on what we're truly called to believe and experience in Christ. You are missing out on the true part of our faith. You're missing out what we're truly supposed to be focused on. You're missing out on the life you're truly called to live. Furthermore, I'll echo what Paul says. Look at verse 16. He says, Do not let anyone pass judgment on you in these matters. Verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you with regard to these things. So for someone to pass judgment on you in these matters or disqualify you in these things is for them to beat you down, write you off, condemn you, say you're not a legit Christian based on you not wanting to conform to this stuff. Excuse me. None of the stuff we've talked about so far, the empty rituals, the mysterious teaching, uh, none of that is of central importance to our faith. None of that is what we're supposed to be focused on. Uh, it says these are a shadow of things to come, verse 17. None of that stuff is what God wants us to be all about. So if anybody comes to you, even if they claim to be a Christian, and they try to beat you down and write you off and disqualify you on these matters, if they're saying you need to prescribe to a set of religious rituals that aren't in the Bible if you're going to be a good Christian, if they're pushing some weird teaching on you that isn't scriptural, if they're giving you the business on whatever, self-made religion that isn't scriptural, don't give in to them. Don't do it. Don't give them the satisfaction. Don't let them dictate what you should or shouldn't do. Don't let them dictate what you should or shouldn't believe. That is between you and the Lord. And friend, you can see right in his word what he wants you to do and what he wants you to believe. And it says to us, I'll keep going here, verse 20, it says to us as Christians, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? It's saying, if you're a Christian, why are you getting caught up in all this stuff? If you're a believer, why are you concerned with this stuff and not what should be your chief concern? Ultimately, these are things that are worldly in verse 20, right? And God tells us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. These are things that are, it says in, again, verse 20, they're according to the elemental spirits of the world. We've come into that phrase a few times in our series. And remember in Colossians, when it says the elemental spirits of the world, that's a reference to demonic activity and influence. So can you imagine the empty rituals, the mysterious teaching, the self-made religion, all of that. It's saying that's demonic. Stay away from it. It's not good for you. The problem in camping out in these things as though they are the real substance of our faith is just that. They're not. They don't help our faith. They help destroy it. But luckily, and I'm going to change gears here, we aren't left hanging. We're shown 
right in this text what the true substance of our faith is, what our faith is really about. And this is where we'll start just our slow descent in here to wrapping this up. The big point number two is this. The substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. I find that to be a wonderfully encouraging verse. And when I think, I'll just tell you, this is what you get. When I think of that word substance, I think about like eating stuff. And I like stuff like soup or whatever, fine. But I want something of substance. Like I want to sink my teeth into like meat or something like thick or I don't know whatever, like whatever it is. I don't want to just drink something out of a straw. The substance, the whole essence of our faith, the good stuff, the meat of it, what's most important, everything of consequence belongs and is found in Jesus Christ. Our faith is not about empty rituals. It's not about mysterious teaching. Our faith is not making up our own rules as we go. It's about Jesus. It centers on Him. It hinges on Him. It has its meaning in Him. It has its experience in Him. You have heard me say this a couple of times now, friends. Jesus Christ is the spiritual experience that we are called to have. It's experiencing His presence. It's enjoying His blessing. It's basking in His glory. It's experiencing His peace and receiving His joy and trusting in His promises and being with Him and abiding with Him. That is the experience we're called to have. Not any of this additional, made-up, self-taught, man-made stuff. It's Jesus. So if you are looking anywhere other than Jesus for your spiritual experience or your spiritual actualization or your spiritual awakening, you are looking in the wrong place. The spiritual life that we live is to be done in relationship with and in close proximity to Jesus. Because friends, we are spiritual beings. We, we the essence of our being is spiritual and we are supposed to be caught up in who Jesus is and worshiping him and being close to him and doing life with him and guess what here's what I'll tell you the spiritual affects everything else the spiritual affects your physical life and it affects your emotional life and your mental life and so on that means your connection with Jesus isn't quote just a spiritual one it's not like it's not like you've got your dresser and you've got a spiritual drawer over here that's where Jesus is and then you've got your physical and then you've got your emotional and your mental no it's all connected your connection with Jesus is supposed to affect every area of your life your physical life Right? We're called to love the Lord with all our strength. That means your energy, the, the efforts of your body, the strength that you have is to be spent in ways that are honoring and worshipful to Jesus in relationship with Him. Your, your emotional life. We're called to love the Lord with all our heart and our soul. Called to love Him with all of our will and our emotions and our personality and so on. Your mental life. We're called to love the Lord with all our minds, people. So every thought, all of our thoughts, patterns, our mental health, and so on. All of that is to be caught up in who Jesus is. Maybe a better way of saying that is that all of life is spiritual. All of life is an opportunity. Every area, every aspect of you is an opportunity to worship Jesus and be close to Him and surrender to Him and submit to Him and enjoy Him. He is the substance of our faith. He is. One last bit of text to cover today. And I want to just leave you with some encouragement here. Verse 19, 
talks about holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. I just want you to see all the benefits that are here. When we hold fast to Christ, when we, and I emphasize the we, when we truly put Him first and walk with Him, look at all this. It affects the whole body. The whole body. That's a reference to the church. Our whole church will be changed as we do this, as we walk with Jesus. And you say, well, changed how? Well, I'm glad that you asked. First of all, we will be nourished. That means what you think it means. We will receive everything that we need to be healthy and strong and, and, and vibrant and thriving as a church. All our essential vitamins and nutrients. But nourished with the very presence of Christ among us. That is what we really need. Together, we will be, look here, it says, we'll be knit together. This is a reference to our unity. Do you think unity in the church is important? I dare say it is. Unity, by the way, isn't something that you just snap your fingers and you have it. Well, we'd like some more unity today. Okay, there it is. No, unity is a byproduct of what happens when, and it's a gift from God, what happens when we all head in a good, healthy direction together. That's toward Christ, walking with Him. As we do that, unity is brought about by the Spirit. It's amazing. Also, it will affect what? All the joints and ligaments. I'm not a science guy, but that means that every part of the body gets affected. Every part of the body that buys into this and walks in accordance with Jesus and with Him grows, is nourished. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the elders. It's not you're just your life group leaders or some spiritually elite or whatever. It's every single person who buys into this grows. And they can grow in their nourishment and unity through the whole body. And it says finally that the church will grow with a growth that is from God. I love that. That doesn't just mean growth as we see it. Right? We might think, oh, growth, that means we'll have more people around in the church. We'll have more butts in the seats. It might mean that, but I don't know. It means, though, that we will grow. And we will grow how? With a growth that is from God. We'll grow how God wants us to grow, which is way more important than how we think we should grow. We will grow in things that are in accord with His character and His will. We will grow, for instance, in our love for God, our love for each other, our love for the lost, our love for the community we live in. We will grow in our Christ-likeness. We will grow in our sanctification. We will grow in our holiness. We will grow in our good works. We will grow in our witness. And I don't know whether you want that today or not, but I'm just telling you, your leaders want that very badly for our church. And the way that that starts is by all of us humbling ourselves before God and purposing to walk with Him. That's an open invitation. Let's start that today. Friends, the substance belongs to Christ. Everything we are and everything we will be, everything we do and will do as a church is supposed to be caught up in the glorious reality of who He is. He is the King of glory. He is the Lord of salvation. He is the head of the church. He is the one who reconciles us to a life with God. He is the reality and the experience that we are called to step into. So I ask you, my friend, where are you with this today? How is your faith? How is your life? Are you walking with Jesus? Who or what are you centered on? Maybe it's the Lord. 
Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job, your money. Who or what are you seeking today for your meaning and your purpose and your fulfillment and your satisfaction and your identity? Who or what are you putting your hope in? Who or what are you looking to to come and deliver you? If it's anyone or anything outside of Jesus, my friend, you are missing out. You are missing out on some of the substance of your very life you've been called to live. You are stopping short. Jesus is what it's all about. That is how that we are going to be a stronger people, a stronger church. Stop settling for less. Stop getting distracted by these side things like we've talked about today. Just don't let your faith be ruined by some lesser concern. Step in closer to Jesus today. Purpose yourself to walk with Him. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Let's step in close to Jesus, friends. We will be better off as a whole body as we do that. I want to pray for us. It's been great to be with you today. Before I do pray, I want to just say, if you're watching this or listening to this and you're not yet a Christian, uh, the invite is open and ready for you. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you and you can get in on the substance of life. Being in relationship with Jesus Christ. He loves you. He created you. He has a plan for you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. He rose from, from the grave and he proved that he is stronger and he is greater. And if you put your trust in him today, you can be saved. You can come into the life that he has designed you to live and created you to live. If you are already a Christian, maybe in our church, and you are struggling or you need help with some of the stuff we've talked about, maybe you're caught up in empty rituals or whatever, whatever the case may be, I would encourage you to reach out, talk to somebody. You can contact the church. The contact will be at the end of our video later today. I want to pray for us, and then we will move on into some worship. So, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge who you are today. You are God. You are great. You are good. You are strong. You are powerful. You are amazing. And you are the substance of our faith. It's not just that we come to you and then we run off into some greener pasture. You are the experience. You are the substance. You are the joy. You are the, the wonder of it, Lord Jesus. Help us to experience this and catch wind of this increasingly. I pray today for my brothers and sisters, God, and I pray that this would be the reality that we would step into. By your grace, by your spirit who lives within us, would you move us forward as a church in this, God. Help us to step in into light of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you worship with us today? Thanks a lot for being here. We'll talk to you real soon.